welcome everyone to Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons, where we talk about dragons of both determination and deliberation. This is episode five, and we are very grateful to be joined by our wonderful guest, Julie Wilson. Woohoo! So first we're going to, (laughs) very professional. So first we're going to introduce Julie. So Julie, what is your name, your pronouns, and what do you study? What are you doing right now? (laughs) What am I doing with my life? Um, Thank you, Peter and Izzy, for having me. I really enjoyed listening to your first episode, and I'm very excited to talk with you guys today about books. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, which will probably be everyone, my name is Julie Wilson. I use she, her pronouns. I know Peter and Izzy through our time together at Vassar College. I am currently an incoming PhD student at the University of Notre Dame where I am planning to study English literature. Woohoo! Yeah, books. I want to read all the books. Give me the books. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you. Okay, what is your favorite book? A Little Princess by Frances Hogson Burnett. Cool. What is your favorite book series? I'm torn between The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lord of the Rings because both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien have different writing styles, but good humor or description in Tolkien's case. And they both, especially C.S. Lewis, that makes me cry. So emotions are a happening thing. Who is your favorite author? I have a couple. Catherine Mansfield is pretty cool. I would also say C.S. Lewis because he's got a great sense of humor and he explains things in a way that makes them easy to grasp. So the most important question, what or who is your favorite dragon? This can be you know, open to interpretation if it's fictional or a real life dragon here, in, here on Earth or a species or an individual, like whatever. That is a hard question because as Peter knows, I love dragons. But I've been thinking about Maleficent when she turns into a dragon in that old cartoon Mm -hmm. version of Sleeping Beauty. And that I I just love that. She's purple and black. Purple's my favorite color. She's a dragon. She does die at the end. She is kind of evil, so that sucks. But yeah, just uh, Maleficent as a dragon is in my eyes, a pretty cool character to look at, even if you want, wouldn't want to have tea with her on a regular basis. I mean, as we've talked about on previous episodes, no dragon is evil. So moving on. Um, <laughs> a fun, <laughs> no a argument fun fact here. about yourself. My go-to is that I played Quidditch in an, an undergrad. Woohoo, best sport. Um, <laughs> if you're up for a contact sport, keep in mind, listeners. Yes. Yeah, no, it, it is it is rough. It is a contact sport. You literally get beaten all the time. And finally, why do you like writing and stories? I have loved reading and writing since I was a little girl. It, it's something that I've always done, however horrible it seems now. I was always in a book, always writing something down, or was creating stories. And that's just been a huge part of my life, really. So honestly, this PhD is just a way for me to continue to pursue that, but in a slightly more academic vein than writing 
fantasy stories. Although I do do some fantasy writing on the side. Because you gotta write about those dragons. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about books as physical objects. And to kind of start that conversation, we did briefly... So we're going to briefly talk about a short story that we read. It is called The Bookstore at the End of America by Charlie Jane Anders. It's in a book of short stories called A People's Future of the United States, edited by Victor Laval and John Joseph Adams. It's essentially a story. California splits away from the rest of the United States of America, basically just due to like different ideologies, or it's framed as if it was due to different ideologies. But like, of course, it's just about water rights, which as a geographer, like so many issues do come down to just water rights and resources. Water is super important. But anyway, so we have these two conflicting sides and right on the border, the only like unguarded spot on the border is actually this bookstore run by Molly and her daughter, Phoebe. There are two entrances to the bookstore, one on the California side, one on the America side, and people from both sides can come in, browse through books. And it's kind of considered like this great neutral zone where like people still kind of read books that more or less fit into their worldview like there are different sections there are like more books on religion on the america side and more books on like gender studies on the california side we are told so it's not like this perfect kind of utopia but it's just an interesting kind of point in between these two places and throughout the story like tensions kind of rise between the two countries and then, like, war does break out. There's, like, these giant, I think they're giant robots um, that kind of go <laughs> to war with each other. And, you know, there's explosions and things. And Molly's, like, getting everyone in her bookstore. So there's there's a group of people from both sides, you know, citizens who are trapped. And they go into, like, this bunker in the middle of the bookstore that Molly had installed just in case. And tensions kind of rise. They They get into some arguments. And then the daughter, Phoebe, decides that they're going to have a book club. And they all read a book together. And instead of fighting each other about various issues, they kind of just debate this book. So that's what we're going to be chatting about. Um, Do they tell you what book they read or is it a fake book? It's a fake book, all right? I think it's a fake book. It's just like some adventure book about... Norman. Norman, who like <laughs> has to free some souls. Like, yeah, there, oh. there's an evil wizard who is trapping all these souls inside him. And then this kid named Norman comes along and he gets all the souls trapped inside of himself. And what follows is a supposedly epic journey of Norman's quest to put the souls at peace and keep himself from going in insane. You get the sense that it's a book. It's kind of a young adult book. The author makes a note that a lot of the adults in the bookstore had read it. So oh, this is it's just Harry Potter. Um, Sounds like Harry Potter knockoff. Not not in terms of the actual story, but in terms of like what it does. And there's like a series and there's spoilers flying all around. I think there's like at least five books. I'm totally the person who would spoil it. I love spoilers. But, but no. yeah, so I guess, Julie, do you have any like just general impressions we're not going to talk about this too long but we're just going to like chat a little bit and use it as a 
starting point to talk about books as physical objects. Yeah, overall, I I did enjoy the story. I, I, I identified a lot with Molly because sometimes I also feel caught between two worlds in a sense. I guess one of the points that interested me was the early discussion about the reason that people in both America and California seek out physical books. The author lists a couple of reasons, but the big issue apparently is the way that books can change as digital media. The author specifically mentions the use of advertisements or random content that will suddenly pop up and interrupt a reader's experience of the book when they are on their updated versions of tablets and phones and laptops. Consequently, if you really wanted a book that didn't change, you had to go to a bookstore and get a physical book because it is much harder to insert customized advertisements into books, supposedly. I thought this point was interesting, but I think it's missing the point about how books do change as physical books. Texts do shift over time, albeit at a much slower rate. And that's what I discussed in my research. So when I came across that point, I did agree with it. I do like print books because if you go to page 47, it's pretty much the same thing on page 47 every time. But that doesn't mean that people don't put in advertisements or don't write things into books that can change the content or the meaning of the content or do other things to transform the physical book. Yeah, that's a point that I definitely didn't really pick up on. This is why Julie does like the physical books and like the geographer means more picking up on like the political ideology stuff. But I think that's super interesting and like thinking about how different editions change over time or like, I mean, I love talking about Harry Potter, like how the different, like the the UK version has different language than the Sorcerer's Stone in (laughs) the US. And like, obviously, I feel like a lot of us have had these conversations around like, oh, I read paper books. I don't read on the Kindle or stuff like that. So there's definitely different ways to consume and different, I guess, different things that go along with that. Yeah. And like, I'm thinking like when you watch videos or like shows and things like you get advertisements. I don't know about like books with advertisements in it, but that's just kind of where my head was jumping to. I know Um, about books with advertisements in it. It's hilarious. Bit of a genre break, but in manga, they have advertisements and they even have a little page sometimes at the end where they're like, tear this page out and send it into the publisher, fill out our survey and maybe you'll like win a prize. And I'm always reading these manga from a library. So it's like, I'm not going to deface a library book from this manga that was published 10 years ago and sent it to the publisher but it's really funny to always see those and be like this is irrelevant to me but somebody who bought this book at the time that closer to when it was published maybe it came of use to them that's actually just making me think of like there's one section in this story where a book was sold to someone but someone else was promised a book and that person they talked to the person who bought and are like oh, I can, you know, digitize it and return it to you in good condition. And the other person's like, no, like, I'm sorry. I like, I own the book. I bought it. So like where you get these books from, whether it's the library or or you're borrowing it from a friend or you bought it, like what you do with the book can be different too. And that brings up a good question about what happens when you digitize a book. Because if you want a really good photocopy image of the pages on a book, you either need to lay the book super flat onto 
are modern day photocopiers. I don't know how digitizing books works in this futuristic situation. You either have to lay it flat, which could damage the binding, or you have to cut out each page, lay it flat onto the photocopier, and then sew it all back together or glue it back together. So yeah, Peter, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't realize that there was a physical issue that was potentially happening. In addition to the political biases between these two characters who don't like each other to begin with, and then there's the added tension of wanting the same book but not being able to work out a good a good solution. Yeah, again, I don't focus on the... I missed all of these points until we start talking about it now. But kind of just to wrap this up and move on, I thought we would just briefly mention how books are kind of used in this story. I mentioned in the summary that they have like this book club to kind of ease tensions and stuff. And I kind of had an initial reading of that and Julie made a good point and she'll make it again for all of you listeners. So when I initially read this, I was very happy with it. And I was like, oh, this is so delightful. Like everyone's getting along. And then as I was thinking about it and like I reread it, I found myself just being disappointed with it. So everyone kind of stops arguing about these different issues and they just talk about this this fantasy Harry Potter-esque book. And in my mind, you know, there are some disagreements and like opinions that I don't think it is okay to agree to disagree on. And they they bring up like issues of there's one book that Molly will not stock because it's like a, this racist book that characterizes people in certain ways. And like the, the America side gets annoyed at her for that. So when I, you know, when I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, I kind of don't want these conversations to stall or to not even be had and like in favor of just pretending like everything's okay. And we're going to chat about like these other things. But I think Julie had a great follow-up reading. And if you could explain like your thoughts, that'd be great. Yes, I'm happy to explain it again. First, I wanted to say that I really liked your thought process, Peter, because that hadn't crossed my mind. It is true that at the end of the story, they don't talk about big issues. And to a certain extent, that's unacceptable because at some point you have to talk about race, about religion, about gender, about the value of human life. Those are big topic discussions that can't just get swept under a rug. Or at least I agree with you in that they shouldn't get swept under a rug especially how you treat others or decide to harm others that you need to talk about because people are getting hurt. So when you were making your point, I found myself agreeing with it, but I also wanted to counteract it a bit and propose a different reading. The benefit of the book club is that they avoid these conversations. Not that these conversations aren't important and shouldn't be had, but because in order to have productive conversations, these people needed to establish common ground. And in this case, it was this teen drama fantasy novel about Norman. And <laughs> I love that name. And uh, however basic or childish that may seem, they, they needed to recognize, or at least I felt like they needed to recognize that the other side was human. And again, we have common ground. Let, let's not vilify each other first if we want to see actual change happening, actual reconciliation. We, we need to get to know each other as individuals before we have those hard conversations. I, dem I tried to demonstrate this by saying, if I go up to 
a random person and start lecturing them about their racism. That's not going to end well. We don't know each other. Yeah, I might see them as doing something racist and wrong, but they're also going to see me as a nosy busybody and as Scooby-Doo villains would say, a meddling kid. And that's not going to be a productive conversation. But if I take time to get to know the person and they take time to get to know me, hopefully over time we can have hard conversations and neither of us might change our mind, but at least there will be more respect and more respect than <laughs> see even English majors can't do words sometimes all I got is respect I, I, I see I do see it as an integral part of wanting to make change with tough subjects like racism like gender and vilifying the other side isn't going to get you anywhere so sometimes putting those conversations on hold might be a better approach Although, as again, as Peter pointed out, there is time for confrontation. There's also a time to just blab about Norman. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. Like, these conversations need to happen. And, like, again, there are some things that are unacceptable. But taking a breath and having conversations in a more productive way, like, with a, with a better understanding of each other is probably better approach so I just I when I read this I was like oh they're just like avoiding all these things but I think Julie's reading of like no they're going to get to those things is is a good reading and I think that speaks to you know what books can do like in this case this this book that they're reading is bringing them together to pause to reflect to have this moment of like okay we all kind of like this same book and it's a jumping off point where we can start to talk about other things and seeing, you know, what books can actually achieve and do. I think it's super important to also take a look at what books are. So that's why we have Julie here and she's going to talk a little bit more about the physicality of books. Whenever you are ready, everyone, we're going to talk about some books <laughs> or one book. <laughs> uh, one book or, and many books. We're talking about the physicality of books. Okay. Yes. So the way I was going to approach my time here talking about my research is to first give you guys a summary of how I got into this. What exactly is the stuff I do and why I think it's important? in addition to what I'm hoping to do at Notre Dame. And then leave you guys lots of room for questions and comments and queries and whatever else you want to ask me about books as physical objects or you know, Beowulf, that works too. So the way I got into books as physical objects is an interesting story. I never intended to study it, I always imagined myself as a medievalist, someone who was interested in the stories, but not so much to the texts that they were written on. And sure, I was interested in The Hobbit for reasons of how does 
how do medieval grail legends play into the Hobbit? That the reception history of medieval stories and later literatures has always been an interest, but I never thought that I would carry that interest into the study of physical books. All that changed at the University of Virginia when I arrived there to do my master's in English. And that's because I took a course on books as physical objects. Originally, it was, I I took it for two reasons. It sounded cool and it fulfilled my theory requirement. But as we were going through the semester, I did find myself enjoying it. And I really loved doing the final project for that class because I got to look at the print history of an old translation of Beowulf. So that's how I got into print history, specifically of this one translation of Beowulf by James Mercer Garnet. Um, James Mercer Garnet, his dates are 1840 to 1916. And he was everything from a Virginian to a Confederate veteran, to a scholar in Germany, to a professor at the University of Virginia, to a retired teacher in Baltimore, which is where he died. And it's been really interesting because studying his translation and how it was physically produced has led me to ask questions about race, about politics, much like the short story that we just discussed. There's a lot of talk about how Old English has been used by some in order to propagate white supremacy. There have been scholars that I've discussed how Southerners after the Civil War did cling to Old English as a way to try to assert white superiority after the shockwaves of the Civil War were still reverberating through the land. And I don't want to hide those conversations because as uncomfortable as they may be for me, it is important to recognize that dark side of how people have used these studies. But I think it's also important to recognize that it wasn't just the South interested in Old English, it was also the North. And you see that more clearly when you look at books as physical objects. Yes, Garnet's translation was produced by a Confederate veteran, but it was physically created by a Boston textbook company using paper probably sourced within Boston, given a green color distinctive of the Boston printing house and distributed across the United States and even seeping into some of the European countries and Australia. So I think in short, I think it's important because it expands our understanding of how old English functioned both as a subject and as physical books in late 19th century America. That's something I hope to continue studying at Notre Dame. This time, however, I'm trying to keep an open mind because um, when I went into Virginia, I was so sure I was going to do one thing and then I switched gears. So that may happen during my time at Notre Dame. But at least for now, I want to focus on the history of Old English in the post-Civil War period and how that offers an avenue for reconciliation between the North and South, as well as an avenue for other means like white supremacy. I blabbered a whole lot. So now I'm going to turn it over to you guys and just let you ask questions about what exactly do I do? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, That was really interesting because you had shared a few notes before, but that was really more detailed than I had had read in your notes. Really interesting. Thank you. (laughs) I hope it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I have my initial question, and it's not the physicality of books, 
because I, I stray from the topic. But <laughs> did like were there any issues for him as he was trying to publish it? Like, because you said it was from a Boston publishing company. Did they have any like thoughts about having like this Confederate <laughs> write a book and then publish it? Like, was there any pushback? That is a really great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before or if I've ever con- really considered it. And the answer to that question is no, there wasn't. And I will tell you why. The first thing to remember is that the North has always had more print or it always had more printing presses than the South, even before the Civil War. Uh, and I touch on this in my thesis, which is about Garnet's Beowulf. The North just had a stronger culture for literacy. It had more resources. And of course, the Civil War put a huge dent in the South's economy and the land and the people. So I'm sure I'm, I'm not saying that there weren't publishing presses in the South. I'm just saying that if Garnet had wanted to get his translation published by a distinguished house, at least in that time period, he had to look North. The other thing that should be taken into consideration is that Garnet was not approaching Beowulf, at least as far as I can tell from a white supremacy mindset. He doesn't appear to have a political agenda. That's again, that's not saying that he didn't have one, but just based on the research I've done into his life, he always seems to have had this interest in education. When the civil war broke out, he was doing graduate work at the university of Virginia After the war, he went to Germany to learn more about philology and other subjects that relate to Old English. He taught for a long time. So he has, he's approaching this, yes, as a Southerner, but also as a very educated scholar who's had experience teaching Old English for at least 10 years by the time the first edition came out. And the company that he published with was specifically a textbook company who was really interested in finding scholars who really knew their stuff and publishing their material in order to better educational textbooks across America. For the record, that company is Gin and Company. They are no longer in existence, but they were pretty big in the post-Civil War era. And especially even after World War I, they still had a huge presence in America and across the globe. So to conclude, Peter, that's a great question. And I'm really glad you asked that. Does that answer your question is what I should be saying? Not really, because <laughs> okay. it's, it's interesting, but I think I was more interested in like the company itself, like the Boston company, were they like, because obviously like during Reconstruction, there was like different approaches like, oh, we should be you know more lenient or we should be more harsh. Like, did they have any qualms about working with with a Confederate? Like, the company itself. So, like, less about him mm-hmm. and more the company side. I would also, again, say no. Because Gin and Company produced two other books on Old English that were written by Virginians. James Harrison's edition of Beowulf, so the Old English text, and then John Leslie Hall's translation. Uh, to provide some date backgrounds, Garnet's original translation was released in 1882 and was reprinted multiple times up until 1912, 
which was when the final reprinting was issued. Harrison's edition was also first released in 1882 and went through several editions and reprintings. John Leslie Hall's translation came later in 1892. That didn't go through as many reprintings, but it did go through some. So I, again, very good question, Peter. I would answer by saying that they were more concerned about education and they didn't see previous civil war alliances as a roadblock that 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 would be my answer and i do have a very old book from 1938 on the history of gin and company (laughs) If, if if you want more information i can page through it and and tell you who were some of the other authors they pulled from who did they hire from what geographical regions they drew does that still answer your question or do you still have <laughs> questions? No, that's better. I want to move on to like the actual like physical book. I can, mm. yeah. <laughs> Izzy, do you have questions? I do. It's not necessarily about Beowulf in general, but more of a book question, general book question. But I'm thinking about books and just their relationship really kind of intrinsically as like class symbols. And how like having a big fat book or having a, a wall of books is a class symbol in and of itself. And especially having older books and knowing that they're expensive and especially back in the day, harder to get a hold of. And I'm just thinking, in your opinion, I don't know if you've thought deeply about this, but at what stage does a book have to be in like construction for you to consider it a book versus how far like destroyed or decomposed does it have to be for it to not be considered a book? Because I took um, a class on indigenous literatures and we talked about how do you define what literature is? And we kind of came to the conclusion that it's a very open idea because especially for indigenous literatures, we were talking about specifically for like Central and South, South America and Mexico and how a lot of their writings either um, were destroyed or were carved into rocks or maybe were dances that were remembered or stories that were passed down orally and so that form of literature is a like a body of not like literal text in some cases but was something that was just passed down through memory so I'm thinking like in a broader sense how what do you consider a book speaking of like the physicality and how much of the book needs to exist for you to consider it a book versus how much of it does not need to exist physically. So you're just asking my personal opinion about. Yes. Okay. In cases such as Beowulf, the more beat up, the better. I I was lucky enough to look at a few first edition copies of Garnet's Beowulf at the university of Virginia library. And some of them are just falling apart. And the librarian in me is like, oh my gosh, someone needs to get these books taped. They need glue. They need help. And the bibliographer in me is so excited because you get to see how the book was put together. I shared a few slides with you earlier just to give you, before this podcast, to give us all a bit of an introduction into what I do before we actually started talking about it. And some of those pictures are, are from those 1882 books that are falling apart. And if you look closely within the binding, you can see scraps of paper 
that have numbers on them and words like algebra and theorem and formula. And it makes me wonder, did, did Jin and company just pick up a random math book, look at it, and go, no one uses this anymore, and then just tear it up and use it to support the binding of Garnet's translation? It's so cool! <laughs> so yeah, I, I guess I would say, at least as a scholar, I'll take anything I can get. If it's falling apart, if it's got so many doodles on it, it's still evidence. It still tells a story. Now, if it's if it's just one page of a book, obviously it's it's just one page for me. It, it doesn't. It still tells a story, but it, it's incomplete, and it's definitely not as complete as the body dances, which is a literal body of literature, and the the rock carvings and the other kinds of literatures that you were talking about. Yeah. I guess I'm also thinking about it in the sense that books are kind of considered to be timeless, but in a way there's a lot of holes in them as well, like, or like with the dances and things where things are forgotten or things that are omitted. And you even maybe in between editions of printings or thinking back to when things were written by hand and maybe somebody copying just left out a line. You never know. Or I guess if you found another edition of the book and you could compare them and you're lucky enough to do that, you could you could tell. That's a good point too. And and that does happen in Garnet's Beowulf. Yeah, I was actually expecting, I only looked at a brief section of it closely to see if there were t- changes in the text. And there are. Between the 1882, which is the first edition, and the second edition, which was 1885, there are several word changes that I'm pretty sure Garnet was the one that instituted them in response to a recent scholarship about the poem. So he changed his wording and he adds a couple of footnotes at the end. And yeah, even these physical texts aren't, aren't static. Again, they, they do change over time. Some of the later editions have advertisements, but not all of the later editions do. And I think that's because of how much excess paper was available once all of the binding had been completed for the book. If they had enough space, they'd print ads. If they didn't, then they wouldn't. That's my working theory now. Yeah, they're physical. They feel concrete and timeless. And they also fall apart. And they have mistakes. And there are literal holes in some of them. Which really confusing. How did those holes get there? Like, in the middle of the page. I could rant about that, but I will restrain myself. Do you know why they have, I mean, even nowadays they have books and it's like two or three pages in the front slash the back and they're just blank. But why? What are those? They're not like (laughs) signature pages. It's not a yearbook. Yeah. Some modern books, probably a lot of modern books do have a couple blank pages in the beginning. And my guess would be that those exist because the publisher just had leftover sheets in that gathering. So the the way you make a book is you take a sheet of paper and you fold it a bunch of times after you print on it. And you need to calculate how much paper you need. When you fold it a certain way, you'll get a certain number of pages per whole sheet of paper that you used. 
uh, and those are called gatherings. So I used one sheet of paper, Russell, 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 to make about 16 pages. Um, but they all come from one sheet. And because they all come from one sheet and the only difference is you just fold it a bunch of times and then cut it certain ways, they're all considered part of one gathering. They're, they're all from the same parent, if that makes sense. So if you're planning out how to print a book, you need to make sure you have enough gatherings. But sometimes, let's say I want to print a book and I figure out that I need 11 pages. So I prep it, I, I print the pages, there, there's my book. But sometimes there are pages left over. After you fold it, you don't fill up every page or you don't need every page. So again, that's where the advertisements come in to fill up blank space. And sometimes you just leave blank pages. There is a special kind of paper called flyleaf paper. And that's the, the kind of paper that you see between the cover and then it extends out into the first page. And that's just there as a kind of glue to keep the cover connected to all of the pages. Yeah, I... <laughs> But I, I, there also might be another process I don't know about. Did that make sense? Are you more or less confused after my attempted explanation? No, my dad has actually explained something similar. Like back in the day, there used to be these little booklet type things that you could buy. And you could, when you bought them, you literally had to cut the pages open yourself. Yeah, I don't know if this was book. recent history. It, that's always how you've made a book. You fold, you fold paper a bunch of times. You, you, well, you print on the paper, then you fold it a bunch of times, and then you cut it open so that you can see all the pages. That's cool. <laughs> I don't know. That kind of makes me think kind of similarly. I mean, you put, like, text on those pages. And obviously the text doesn't, like, always fit perfectly. And, I mean, even if you're using, like, Microsoft Word, depending on where you are at at the bottom of the page, like, you might have lines, like, you'll have like a bigger space at the bottom or like a smaller space and then you write some more and it makes it into a smaller space and it puts everything back up. Mm. So, you know, it, it's a process of like trying to fit everything onto those pages. I guess, is there anything like when you're looking at, like when you were looking at Beowulf, was there anything about the text itself and like the words and like the spacing that you looked at? What can that tell you about the book? And like, it's fine if you didn't look at that. Like, that's totally fine. I don't know if you did. So, yes. Information such as spacing and arrangement of words on pages can tell you a lot. In the old days, you had to manually put in the text. So you had to, if you wanted it to go from one end of the page to the other, you had to make sure that there were spaces enough to fit it in. The whole paragraph thing that you're talking about that had to be done manually rather than a computer automatically formatting it for you. And because this was a human activity, there are different styles for doing so. I, I imagine there are different ways to hyphenate, different ways to break words up, different strategies of spacing. Also, publishing houses would have different format requirements. For every book we publish, we're going to have a space that's yay big instead of yay big between words. 
the the answer to your question, Peter, is yes, there is a lot you can learn about how the type is formatted. You can also learn a lot about what type was used if you see type damage and it reoccurs across a book. You can figure out if one piece of type was reused across multiple plates and deduce what that will tell you about how they made the book. The reason I'm stumbling over this is because I didn't look at type a whole lot. Aside from the collating exercise I explained to Izzy where I looked to see if the words changed and also if the inking changed and if if there was type damage change over time, I didn't look at it for a few reasons. One, I didn't have time. This was just a master's thesis. I only had a year and a half with, with these books and I was trying to look at as many as I could and just get a sense of the binding and I just didn't have time to extensively collate each one. And that leads into reason two, I am super detail oriented, which is great for some things, but if looking at type just drives me insane because I see a lot of differences and I can't tell if it's just me, if it's the, the machine that I'm using to help me see those differences, if those differences mean anything, if I should write them down, what details to include or not. So I... I decided to not really focus on type. It is important. It can tell a lot, but uh, for my sanity and given the time I had, I, I didn't really focus on it. I, I focused on font and on what, what kind of type they use and how, how big the pages that they fill the type into. But I left it at that because that requires more research and more patience and a little more insanity than I was willing to give at the time. That's fair. There's not enough time for everything. I was just curious. Now, uh, again, you guys are asking great questions. These are, <laughs> this is great stuff. Not a question Careful. for the podcast, but just extra question. Um, do you know what a kerning is? Like when you're looking at the, the text? Oh, what? Is, do you mean kenning? I don't know how to print. I it's spelled like K E R N I N G. I don't so know I, what a kerning is. I know a kenning is a word used to de- describe old English poet poetry. Okay. No, I just because this is something that I always obsess over. It's literally just the space between different letters, but like specifically, like if you have an S and you have a T, there will always be like a specific. I mean, I guess not in handwritten, but like in, you know, modern technology written things, there will always be a specific amount of space in between an S and a T as opposed to like an S and an A. Mm -hmm. So like every letter and like every other letter has a defined amount of space between it. And yeah. So when you're talking about like fixating on certain things and like kernings, um, There's a podcast, Witch Please, that has an episode where they talk about the physicality of books and they bring in like a professor because the, the two hosts are like Canadian English professors. And one of their colleagues who works at the university with them, like, does the physicality of books and was like looking at she was talking about like the kerning and Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Anyway, random, random tangent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's probably because, I don't know if it's just because, but that reminds me of how when you were printing something in the old days, you would have a piece of type 
and it would have the A, but it would have negative space around it to form a little square. So obviously each piece of type was different just in terms of what letter they were representing and who was casting it. So yeah, it makes sense that the space between an S and an A would be different than an S and a T because you're using two different kinds of type letters. It also depends on the font and how you style the S versus the T and how much space, negative space you give or don't give them. Anyway, yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. I now know a new word, kernings. Ooh, now I'm thinking too, like in cartography, we're talking about like readability of like different things. And like when making a map, if you use all caps, it's actually like harder for people to read. Because if you do like undercase letters with like a capital like here or there, just the way that the space is impacted. Like you have some letters that like go up, some that go down, some that are just in like that middle spot. So like Lingshu, maybe you include some of this. Like it'll be hard to cut, but some of this is really good. Um <laughs> <laughs> but just yeah. So so the kerning and the the font and the type and like how you like how you decide whether or not to use capitals or lowercases does impact the readability and like what readers get out of the book too there's a lot of other stuff about font and readability and we discussed this a little bit in my class at virginia and i won't go into it further because i'm not experienced with it but i will say that yes that a lot of other people have talked about this and there are probably a lot of other resources that can introduce you to the nitty-gritty of font and letter spacing really intense topics on this podcast (laughs) Lingshu, you may or may not decide to keep this voice in the podcast. And that's okay. <laughs> keep it in, Lingshu. Okay. We, you said it. You said it was okay. It's recorded. It, it, it's out there. <laughs> Five years later, I'm going to be interviewing for professor jobs. And my interviewer is going to say, Julie, I came across this podcast. Is this you? And then they'll play it. And I will turn crimson red. But until <laughs> then, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> what, what could go wrong? So not something that's produced by the book companies or the author. But um, I wanted to talk about marginalia. And I guess, I mean, first, like, explain to the listeners what marginalia is. And then when you're, so when you're looking at these different editions and books, what does that tell you about? I guess, the history of the book. So marginalia is roughly defined as any and all doodles, scribbles, words, marks, and other features inserted into a book by someone other than the author or the publisher. I was a research assistant for a professor at UVA, Andy Stauffer, who worked with another colleague, Kristen Jensen, on this kind of stuff. And they defined marginalia differently. They relegated marginalia specifically to scribbles and notes within the text itself and used other terms to describe whatever you might find on the front fly leaves of a book, on the title page, or just on the outside cover of a book. Because yes, people have written on the outside cover of a book. I think I have one book that has writing on the outside cover and it's very interesting. But for the interests of keeping it simple, I will just refer to everything as marginalia. 
because that's probably more familiar. And saying interventions is a mouthful. So yeah, marginalia are produced by the users. And this doesn't just have to be writing on a page. Some people put glue in things like book plates or book reviews. Some people insert random leaves into books and you find a nice pressed leaf when you open the book. There are dead critters. I don't think those were intentional, but you do see those. For the most part, in the, the you can exclude the stuff about dead critters, don't you? No one needs to hear that. Um, I do. Oh, you, you want to hear about the dead critters? Yes. Okay. Um, it, it, I just mo- think it's cute that you say critters. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say insects because sometimes you see spiders. I think I've seen flies too. It, it's just poor souls that get trapped in the book and <laughs> never come back out. Um, just like in Norman's body where all those souls hang around and you're not sure if Norman's going to get rid of all of them. But to attempt to be a little more serious, I did intensively study the marginalia and all of the Garnet books that I could lay my hands on because it didn't drive me crazy, unlike a typeface. And it's very different for each book. And I was particularly curious about the reception history of Garnet's Beowulf, especially given the North-South question and just where was Beowulf in America and the results were really interesting most of the marginalia that I found were relegated to the central parts of the text the translation itself I I didn't see I saw some in the introduction and and a couple in the notes but for the most part readers scribbled in, in the translation itself whether it was just underlining it parts that struck out to them, whether it was writing notes in the margins that may or may not be legible, whether it was just putting little marks in the side of the page to perhaps suggest this is where I need to read to for next class or to mark off certain passages. Typical ways that we engage with books today for school. I saw a lot of those in the Beowulfs that I found. That tells me that a lot of people were using it as a textbook, which is as it was intended. And they were taking advantage of the nice margin space that Jin and company gave to do all their scribbling and their note-taking and their confusion. Unfortunately, I did not see a whole lot of doodles <laughs> in these books. So maybe the people who used them were really interested in the classes and weren't bored. But again, I only looked at a small sample of books. So like 25 books or so. That's not a lot to give conclusive data on anything, but at least it's a start. And that was the goal of my thesis, to at least make a start into an area that not many scholars have looked at. The other interesting thing about the marginalia that I will say is the kinds of names and places that came across when owners would write down whose book it was and where they were and when they were at the time of obtaining it. In other words, I've seen inscriptions where... People were at Virginia. People were in Nevada. Their Vassar actually has a, a copy of the second edition, and that has an inscription from Ella Park Lawrence, who got the book from a lecture series, I think, at least according to her inscription, and somehow ended up, ended up in the hands of her daughter, and then it ended up at the Vassar Library because it was dedicated to one of the librarians. It's interesting in that book, 
to look at the different book plates, the library book plates, the book plate that Ella Lawrence put in and to try to piece together the story of where this book has been and who gave, who received this book, why and why. Obviously, there are still questions. Some of the signatures that I encountered were not legible or had no information other than the name. So I couldn't really identify them. And a couple confused me. But overall, the evidence seemed to show that this was used as a textbook and was treated as a textbook. And for the most part, was respected as a textbook. Can you just briefly explain what a book plate is? Because that's always confused me. Yes. A book plate is not actually a plate. It's a piece of paper that no no one stuck a plate onto a book and said, ah, a book plate, and left it at that. Uh, A book plate is a piece of paper, usually with a design on it, that you stick inside a book to and use it to claim ownership and or explain the origins of the book. If you open up library books, pretty much anywhere you'll probably find them. In the 1800s, a lot of people used book plates to, not all of them, but some of them, to mark what book was theirs. Some of the Beowulf books that I looked at had users who put in their personal book plate to say, this is my book. And they used the same kind of book plate in other books. So by looking at the book plates, you can trace what that person's collection was. So yeah, book plates, just pieces of paper that are usually nicely decorated. And they say, who owns the book? Sometimes they're put in by owners and sometimes they're put in by libraries to say, this is from the University of Notre Dame. Give it back to us when you're done with it. But yeah, that's a whole different topic that could be discussed and analyzed just based on the drawings. Uh, Anyone who's interested in art or media, that that's... You see a lot of different designs, a lot of different colors or lack thereof. So yeah, like type and marginalia, there's a lot you can learn from the book plates. Did I explain that well enough? I know I've rambled a little bit, but that's because I'm so excited. No, that was great. I had like, I've heard that term so many times and like, I've always been confused. So it's like not the author doing it. It's people and showing ownership. That's super useful. And I think, yeah, you even have like a picture of a book plate in your thesis quite a few oh you have um, a few okay yeah this this is a book this is that's not a book plate never mind <laughs> it's just inserted in there proceed okay. but Ignore no you me. answered it really well like that was that was super helpful do you have any tips for our listeners dragon flying tips everyone <laughs> dragon flying <laughs> tips i wish i had those i wish i had a dragon But alas, since I don't have a dragon or am able to fly because our Quidditch team has not yet worked that out with the brooms, I will simply resort to tips for curious readers who would like to continue to pursue this sort of stuff. Just go into your library and look for old books because you don't know what secrets they might be holding. I guess the other thing I would say is keep an open mind because... I thought I was going to be a straight medievalist and now I'm doing stuff in American history. And it is a really cool way to tie old English to American history to the present. So, Ooh, final thing. If you have any copies of old Beowulf stuff and you don't want them, 
contact me because I would like to build a personal Beowulf board. So yes, dragon hoarding tip, just start collecting random books on Beowulf. (laughs) Check out our website, which may exist by the time you listen to this podcast, listeners. And we we may or may not have Julia's contact info. And that concludes episode four of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. Thank you so much to Julie Wilson for being an amazing guest. We loved having you on. And thank you to all of you for listening and joining us on this creative writing journey. Have a great day and see you soon. Bye. I feel like I'd be like Gimli. I'd just look at like Loss, tiptoeing across these 10 feet banks of snow and just go show off. Oh, I think Gimli just speaks to the human condition. <laughs> <laughs> Another voice imitation that will come to haunt me later in my academic career. That one then you please do cut out. I mean, I could ask you about your views on the card catalog, but I will restrain myself because that would be a whole rabbit hole. This is a weird one-way relationship. (laughs) Yes.